You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Genesis 8:20 through 9:17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike ag- strike down every Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered." Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Noah's, God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Back in 2012, uh, I had the opportunity to go on a tour of Israel, the Bible Lands tour. It was part of my seminary. I was a commuter student, so I didn't know that many people at seminary. I was just traveling in one day a week, but they were doing this Bible Lands tour, and I had this opportunity to go, and, and uh, Bree gave me the go-ahead to go ahead and go, and she made me promise her that uh, I could go without her if uh, I promised to take her one day. So that's still on the books, and now I'm on the record on the internet that... Uh, I have to uh, take her one day, which would be wonderful. So I had to meet up with everybody else was flying out of Chicago, from Chicago to Amman, Jordan. And we were flying on this airline called Air, Jord- Air Jordanian, not Air Jordan, Air Jordanian. And uh, it was like an 18-hour flight. And I didn't know anybody. I was just meeting them as we were about to board the plane. And I got seated 
um, you know, and on this big plane, and it was, you know, it's more of an Arab, it's an Arabic airline, and so just the feel of the airplane is different, um, and and the people that was that were flying to Jordan was just a, it was it was different than the setting I'm used to as a South Dakotan. And so um, as we were flying, we were getting ready to go, and it was a late night flight. It was leaving at like 10 o'clock p.m. and flying like all through the night. And, uh, you know, if you can just imagine, two-hour flights get me kind of claustrophobic, but an 18-hour flight. And so they're serving us this Jordanian food, which was a little different for me. And then uh, I decided I was going to watch a movie to pass the time. And so it's 2.30 in the morning. I'm tired. I'm just not in my element. I ate something. I don't really know what it was. And then uh, I start watching the movie Contagion. So Contagion is a movie about this, um, this, um, this contagion that breaks out on an airplane. That's how it starts, is that this virus or whatever, this deadly whatever, breaks out on a... And so I'm just, I'm dehydrated, I'm tired, my stomach feels funny. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I'm watching this movie and it's starting to mess with me a little bit. And the person in front of me all of a sudden gets up in the barf bag and just runs right by me. You know, because they were sick and they're running back to the bathroom. And I'm like, okay, it's time to take a break from the movie. And uh, we ended up getting there and everything was fine. It was just a long, hard flight. It was definitely not the most comfortable for me. And then we, we gathered up as a team and we had our guide who had led something like 80-some trips through Israel. He just knows this place pretty well, both Jordan and uh, Israel. And, uh, and he took us, to the ho- took, us, took us to the hotel and it's just all new. It's just all new. new the signs don't look the same. Everything looks different, and uh, I'm excited. I'm both excited about what lays in front of me, this new world that kind of lays in front of me, but I'm also a little bit like, how do I live? How do I, how do I interact? How do I, how do I go? And our, our guy just kind of huddled us up. I think he kind of sensed that all of us were just a little bit like, I hope this goes well. <laughs> and, um, and he just said, okay, here's how, here's how it's going to work. And he just laid out. He just defined reality for us. And then he gave us instruction. Here's what you want to do and what you don't want to do. You want to go this way, not this way. You want to eat this, not this. And then he said, and just know that I'm going to be with you. I'm going to with you. I'm going to be guide you. I'm going to be right here if you need anything. Um, I've been here before. I know what I'm doing. And so uh, our guide really served as defining reality. He gave us instruction on what to do, and then he was going to guide us with his presence, which really is, is essentially what we see God doing with Noah as Noah exits the ark. Now, he's had a pretty long, his was longer than an 18-hour travel. He was in this boat for who knows how long in the uncomfortableness of being in the ark, and then he comes out into this new world, and God speaks to him, and God speaks to him. And so uh, that framework of defining reality, um, giving instruction, and, and promising to be with Noah is right at the heart of what God's doing here. It's what he does at the beginning of the book of Genesis. It's what he's going to do here with Noah in this new world that he is bringing him into. And so I, the, the title of our message is The God of a New World and a New Covenant. God of a New World and a New Covenant. And so that's going to serve basically of the outline of our message is to look at God, this new world that he has made, that they're emerging from the ark to enter into, and a new covenant that he makes with humanity and indeed all of creation. Uh, Before we do that, let's just have a little bit of a narrative reset on where we're at in the book of Genesis. We've been going now for several months through the book of Genesis. The idea is for us to just get our feet under us about who God is, how he's made the world, how he's made us, and what went wrong. And so I think I have an outline there just to kind of give you a sense of where we're at um, leading up to the first, these, the, up to chapter 8, is that ultimately uh, the Bible starts with a great God, Genesis 1.1. doesn't make a defense for God's existence, it just declares that He is, and that He is 
the ultimate reality. He is the only self-sustaining one. He is an intelligent, personal being, and He has pre-existed all other things. He is self-existent and glorious, and He is great. Genesis 1-1, the Bible just starts there. In the beginning, God. And this God creates, and He speaks, and we see in Genesis 1-2 through 2-25, a creation. God, this is a creating God, and He creates a world and a universe, and He fills that world with life, and indeed even fills it with His own image bearers. And so God creates by His own Word. Creation comes by the Word of this great God in Genesis 1, 2 through 2, 25. As the story progresses in Genesis chapter 3, these image bearers institute a rebellion against this great God and corrupt themselves and corrupt all of creation. That was one of the unique responsibilities that the image bearers had was to image God, to obey Him, to follow Him, to represent Him, to fill the earth and subdue it, to spread the world spread all over the world with His glory and His goodness and to represent Him. And they took their special responsibility and authority and they decided to go against God, to rival God, to rebel against God, to declare war on God. And they corrupted themselves and indeed the whole world and every human being since then has received this same rebellious disposition towards God. In Genesis 4 through 6-3, we see that human rebellion degenerates into worldwide violence. And so what starts with a one bite of one piece of fruit with Adam and Eve in the garden now degenerates into their sons, one son murdering another. And all of a sudden we, we get to the point that it degenerates to the point of Genesis chapter 6 where the heart of man was always evil all the time. And there was just, the world was just filled with violence. Animals were violent. The people were violent. It was just violent on every level. And so God, in Genesis 6, 4 through 8, 19 that we saw last week, does these two things. He executes a worldwide judgment and at the same time offers a means of salvation through the ark. God does both at the same time, both exercises judgment and wrath and mercy at the same time. And so God cleanses the earth of sin We have this decreation where the world in Genesis 1 was covered with water. It said the Spirit was hovering over the earth, was hovering over the waters of the earth. And God did a decreation event, but in the midst of that, He saved one righteous man and his family, Noah and the seven people who were with him, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. And so at the same time in Genesis 6 6 through 8, we see both judgment and salvation, God's wrath against sin and yet His merciful disposition towards those who have faith in Him. And if you look at chapter 7, and uh, you see this decreation event where the world is returned to its watery state. And uh, Tanner kind of walked through some of this last week. I gave him so much, <laughs> so he maybe wasn't able to get into this. But I want to point this out to you as we lead into our text, is that chapter 7 is a decreation event. I think I've got a, what do I have up there? Okay, that's called a chiasm. That's a Hebrew way of writing stories or poetry in that the first and the the bottom, the top and the bottom, you see the A letters, they match. And then as you work your way to the middle of the text, there's this matching. Either they're the same or they're contrasting to where you get to the middle point and that's kind of the pinnacle. It's kind of like climbing a mountain. You go up the trail, you, you see the beautiful sunrise, and then you go back down the same trail. And that's what it's doing narratively is we have this decreation until we get through chapter 7, the systematic decreation, until we get to chapter 8, verse 1, 
and we see God remembered Noah, and then he begins recreating the world. So he decreates the world under judgment and then recreates it throughout chapter 8. God remembered Noah and begins recreating the world. And you see these parallels. Mountains in 150 days match up. Waters rising and receding for 40 days. And you have seven days of waiting. And then at the end you have seven days of waiting actually twice. I think two or three times actually. But it's, it gives it in that sense of seven days. To give you this sense of creation. God created the world in seven days and now he's recreating and they're waiting and they're about to emerge into this new world. The ark loaded in, in 7, 1 through 3 and then the ark unloaded into a new world that has been decreated and recreated in a, pa- in a parallel of the first creation. So that brings us then to our text. Um, Genesis eight twenty. And what I want to look at first is uh, we've got kind of a three-part outline today just to help, you, help guide you through the text. Is One, we want to take a moment and just look at God. Look at God, the main character and supreme agent of the whole Bible and particularly our text today. As they step into this new world, God is the dominant character and He is the primary agent. He's the primary one at work as they step off of this ark. And then we're going to take a look at this new world that parallels the first creation. It's got some things that are the same and some things that are different. We'll point those out. And then this new covenant that's going to parallel a final salvation. So while this is an actual event that happened in history, it's also going to be a template for how God brings about the ultimate salvation through Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's start by looking at God, the main character and supreme agent. If we were to take our text just in English... Not the original Hebrew that it was written in, but take it just in our English text from, 920, or from 820 to 917, there's 508 words. 435 of those are God's words, God speaking. So God is the dominant character in our text today. As they step off the ark, the most important person is God and what God has to say. God is going to define reality for them. God is going to give them some instructions on how they live in a place that they've never been before. And then he's going to say that I'm with you. He makes a promise that he's going to be near to them. And so God is the main character and the supreme agent. Five times in the scripture, in this text alone, it says God said. So God is the main character. God is the primary one who's speaking. God is taking the initiative. And just notice how much of this text is God speaking. Let's start in chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar on to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offering on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever begin again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease." So again, God defines reality, he's going to give instruction, and then he's going to personally guide people by his word. And so God speaks authoritatively. He speaks a word of commission to them. And I find it fascinating that this is really talking about God's internal monologue. This had to have been revealed by God, because how does Moses, as he's writing this, know what God's thinking? But that's what we have. It says the Lord said in his heart. So you have the inclination of God's heart in response to the worship of, of these eight humans. You don't need to have a big gathering for God to notice, right? God notices the worship of these eight people and his heart is filled with compassion and he has this, though man's heart is continually going to be inclined towards evil, God's heart is inclined towards mercy and he makes this promise to himself. 
to himself that he will never again strike down these creatures as he has done this time. He won't do the flood event again. And again, and eventually in the next section of scripture, he's going to verbalize that covenant to them, this covenant promise that he gives to them. So God speaks authoritatively in this text. And then also we see that God acts benevolently. God acts benevolently. He is so gracious in this passage. So many, so, such, a, such a wonderful promise and covenant that's completely undeserved and yet just freely offered because that's the kind of God he is. Coming out of this judgment, he is a God of judgment and wrath. He's also a God of mercy and compassion and grace. And so he acts benevolently. I, notice God's initiative in this text. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. We're just gonna, I'm just going to um, help you spot them as we go through. Look at God's initiative, God's promise to take action. 8.21, I will never again curse the ground. I will never again strike down every living creature I have done. And so that's God saying that he's not going to do that again. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. He says, I gave you the green plants. You see the initiative of God. They didn't earn this. It was given to them. It says, I give you everything. In chapter 9, verse 5, he says, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. I will require it. I will require a reckoning. And we'll come to that in a minute. Unpack that a little bit. In chapter 9, verse 9, I establish my covenant. So God is going to act. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Chapter 9, verse 12, I make between me and you and every living creature that is, uh, that is with you. Uh, the sign, this sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And then I have set my bow in the cloud. God's like, I'm going to give you a sign. When I bring clouds over the earth and the, bow, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and everything, every living creature and of all flesh that is on the earth. Noah said to God, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So God is the initiator. God is always the initiator. God is the one who comes to us. God is the promiser. God is the one initiating a promise here. Noah and his sons and their wives haven't said really anything that we have recorded here yet. They haven't made any vows or deals before God. They're worshiping Him because He is the Creator, but he is, he, is, he is granting them blessing. He is giving them a promise. And God himself is the guarantee. When he puts the bow in the cloud, he says that I will remember. It's to be a sign, not just to the world, but to himself. I will see the bow and I will remember my covenant with you. As if God would ever forget. It's a way of him just kind of saying, just, hey, just know that I will not forget my promises. God, I myself am your guarantee. My own character assures that I will keep my promise. God is the one who does the work. They didn't earn this. And so God is the main character. He is the supreme agent. He is the one who speaks authoritatively. He is the one who acts benevolently upon the world. And what is required of them? To simply receive the promise. To look for the signs of the promise. To obey His commands. To see God, to see mankind as God sees them. And we'll see here in just a moment, organized systems of proportional justice. We'll look at that in just a moment. So we see that God is the main character, the supreme agent. He is at the center and he speaks. 
He is the one who defines reality. He is the one who gives instruction. And he is the one who has promised that he will have his eyes on them. He will lead them and he will guide them. And so now we see this new world. So a new world that parallels the first creation. It's interesting because Noah steps off this ark and in a sense he's kind of like a new Adam. He's the head of all of the future humanity. So we have this new Adam that parallels the first one. God has decreated and recreated the world and now a man and his family is coming out and all the descendants of earth will now be a descendant of Noah. He is the head of all future humanity. He's also like a new Abel. He brings an an offering of acceptable sacrifice as he steps off the ark. So he's like a new Abel. He's like a new Seth in that his family will carry on the line of promise. All of those others have been wiped out in the flood. And so the line of promise will go through Noah and will go through one of his sons. And so he's like the new Adam, the new Abel, the new Seth. And what we have is a new yet the same world with a new and yet the same humanity. And so this is not God wiping the whole world out and creating a whole new humanity. It's still going to be descendants of Adam, but it's going to be new yet the same, yet different (laughs) in some really interesting ways. So let's first look at what's reestablished. What's the same from the old creation? We had God speaking in Genesis 1 and creating the world, defining reality, giving everything shape and form, rendering his verdict upon it. And now we have this new creation. And guess what? We have God speaking again. We have God speaking as as these human beings make their way in this new world. And we see, first of all, that there is continued corruption of mankind. If you look at chapter 9, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So ultimately, while Noah was righteous and his sons were with him on the boat and their wives, they came out, the sin problem is still there. Um, And so we see God affirming right 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 away that mankind still has this inclination towards evil. They still have this fallen heart, this fallen disposition. And so we know that that's the same from the world before the flood to the world now after the flood is that there's still sin in the heart of man. We also see that the command to be fruitful and multiply is still in effect. It started again. Chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Which looks a lot like chapter 1, verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So we have this multiplication of the animals and humanity are to be fruitful and multiply. So that's still in effect. God hasn't changed his mind on that. That's still the purpose of his creation. That's still the purpose of humanity. And then we see it repeated again in 9-7. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Which was also repeated in one twenty-eight. So God is, is recommissioning this new humanity. God blessed them. This is 128. Back in the first creation. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see that mankind is still corrupted by sin, but still has the command to be fruitful and multiply. The original intention of man is still in effect. And then thirdly, we see that the image of God still exists. Humanity is still made in the image of God. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9. He says, And for your lifeblood I will require require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man and from his fellow man I will require a reckoning from the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, here's the reason for all of it, God made man in his own image. 
what you said in, in, in chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So we're supposed to see a parallel here in chapter 9 with chapter 1. God is creating this new world, and he is, he is, he is describing what is the same, what is still the same, which the sin problem is still a problem. And will remain a problem through the rest of your Bible until Christ comes and deals with it. The command to be fruitful and multiply still is, is on humanity. All of us that live on this side of the flood still have that mandate upon us. And the image of God is still in effect for every human being that is the descendant of Noah, which is all of us. That we're all still made in God's image. Every single human being is still made in the image of God. The flood did not change that. Humanity is still made in His image. So what's different Notice a few things in here that are different from the, the post-flood world versus the pre-flood world is that, first of all, we've got seasons that mark times, 8-22. So maybe these existed before, I don't know, but God really explicitly talks here in a way that seems like it's sort of a new thing. So now we have seasons to mark time, so the ecosystem perhaps is a little different. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And that's in 8.22, so, so perhaps the ecosystem is a little different post-flood, and God is giving definition to that. In 9.2-3, we see that the animals are now going to be fearful of humanity. If you, it says this, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives on the f- shall be food for you. As I gave you green plants, I give you everything. So, he, so the, the relationship with the animals is going to be a little bit different in that they're, they're not going to be as easy to control. <laughs> so if you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, the animals passed all in front of Adam and Adam was naming them, right? Well, they're not going to be as easy. They're not going to parade as easily. You kind of wonder, how did Noah get the animals on the ark? Well, perhaps animals were a bit more cooperative. It seems like post-flood, there is something different about how humanity relates to other animals in a way that they're just a little bit more fearful. So that's why it's hard, kids, for you to catch that squirrel in your yard. Maybe pre-flood, that squirrel was all over you. I don't know. So they won't parade on command like Adam when he named them. They won't be easily gathered into Noah's boat. And so perhaps that is one of the reasons why it was th- they were able to get the animals on the boat. But now post-flood, the dynamic between animals, animals are going to somehow recognize sort of the image of God in, in a way that they're going to be fearful of man in, in an interesting, in kind of an interesting and special way. We also see the sacredness of blood, which was sacred before. Some of these things are not uh, necessarily different than, than before flood. We don't know for sure, but this is now a, these are the kinds of things that God is emphasizing now in this new world. Um, so we see the sacredness of blood, nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is in its blood. So there is now a permission to eat animals that we didn't see prior to this. Um, God gave them food, uh, plants and fruit to eat, and now he's giving them special permission. But there's something to be distinct about the way they eat animals. They're not to eat it with the blood in it. There's all kinds of speculation of what that means. I kind of think it means that we're to cook our food. We're to cook our food. We're not to eat like the animals. We're to just show that we're not the same as animals by just eating raw meat like an animal, right? Like, so that's what we would say. If we saw someone jump out of their car and start gnawing on some roadkill, we would go, they're acting like an animal, right? But we're to cook our food. We're to prepare it. We're not to be like the animals. We're not to eat like the animals. We are to... 
to, uh, to come at it a little bit differently. There could be other things going on there, but that's uh, perhaps kind of what I think is going on there is that this distinction between man and animals and that even the eating is distinct, which goes back a little bit God's command about eating. So we're going to see this eating thing um, kind of continue to be a theme in the scriptures. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So here we have, because of the image of God, there is to be a justice system. Prior to this, the only thing that we really have is that we go back to Cain. When Cain killed Abel in Genesis chapter 4, God put a mark on Cain so that humans would not execute justice on him. And then we just don't see that there is any kind of justice system at all pre-flood. And so God executes his justice, and now this new humanity is to seek justice, to put up systems of justice, and God is, in a sense, putting the responsibility into humanity's hands to right some wrongs, to, to make judgments, and to render verdicts. And so what we see is really the foundation of human government, human law enforcement, human justice. And the foundation, the key, the seed of this is the image of God under God. That's the foundation of justice. That's the foundation of good government, right law enforcement, good laws, is that human beings are made in the image of God and all of humanity is accountable to God. I will require a reckoning. I expect you to act justly and to deal with evil when it surfaces. And the basis by which you determine what is, a, what is, in, what is just and unjust is to be at the center about the image of God under God. Okay, so this is, the, this is the foundation stone of human government, human justice, human law enforcement. And so we have this um, sacred responsibility, this sacred institution whereby God allows humanity to create systems of justice and judgment accountable to him. This is the, so, so here we've got three things. Three things that just self-government are to, um, are to be marked by. Obviously, this gets super complicated. This gets super complicated as you work your way out. But if this is the starting point, this is the center point, this is the most significant, I think the most significant couple of verses on human government in the whole Bible. I think everything starts here and has to be run through the fra- this framework. So, first of all, we see from this passage that governments, systems of justice, are to render judgment for the sake of justice. God has authorized humanity to form governing systems for the rendering of proximate justice. Reckoning means putting things right. I will require a reckoning. So if a wrong has been done against an image bearer, a real, definable injury done to an image bearer, I demand a reckoning from you by humanity. You need to come up with a system to make that right because the person who was injured is made in the image of God. A rendering of a judgment, so you're to weigh the evidence and to come to a verdict and then execute a reckoning, an appropriate justice. It's not merely just to punish an evildoer. It's part of it. And it's not merely to deter further evil. That's true. But ultimately, to honor the value of the victim. He says the reason why justice comes is because the victim is made in the image of God, right? For, 
For God made man in his image. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So at the heart of every act of justice is the image of God, is the image of God being honored here. Under God, honored. So we see an aspect of proximate justice. What we mean is that the punishment should fit the crime. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Like it should match. It should match. If a man takes the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. The, fun, the punishment should fit the crime. So we see that principle here, right? So if someone, you know, steals your watch, that might not be proximate to take the life of that person. That would be dishonoring the image of God in them to execute an over-execution of justice. So this idea of rendering judgment and giving proximate justice that honors the image of God on every side is at the heart of what's being required of humanity now in how they deal with the evil that inevitably is going to start growing up. We didn't see that pre-flood, and now God is saying, I'm putting this responsibility on you to organize yourself to do this. Notice that they're not to adjudicate offenses against God. So there's nothing in here about pride. We don't throw people in jail for being prideful or for being idolatrous or being blasphemous, right? This is about physical injury against an image bearer. And so this is, what he's, this is what he's instituting for all of creation. So to render judgment for the sake of justice. Secondly, to promote human flourishing. Look at the context of this. is in the context of the, um, of the command to be fruitful and multiply. So there are going to be some who are going to resist being fruitful and multiplying by committing crimes against image bearers. And so you must restrain that evil in approximate way to promote human flourishing. God has instituted governments for the sake of facilitating the creation mandate. Does this help humanity be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it? Is one of the factors that must be in play here. God has instituted governments for the sake of facilitating the creation mandate, which it does not establish, which it does by establishing order, promoting virtue, facilitating the growth of prosperity, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So every policy argument really should be argued from the basis of Genesis 9. So Christians, as you think about how you interact with particular policies, keep it open-handed, but your principle is here. Is, does this fit through a Genesis 9 framework? Is this just? Does this honor the image of God? Does this promote human flourishing? And then lastly, the last point is to allow people to seek God. God has instituted governments for the sake of his redemptive purposes. Now, Acts 17 and 1 Timothy 2 help us with this. Acts 17, 26 through 27, here's what it says. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps find their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from any one of us. So, it says that God made from, it, from one man many nations, and the purpose of God in those nations is to create boundaries and set up systems in such a way that people would be able to see and know the Creator. This doesn't necessarily mean that any particular nation should pr promote a particular sort of religion, but we do think that what's saying here in Acts 17 is they should not be a hindrance to people's free ability to seek God because He's not that far away. 
And so that's one of the purposes. 1 Timothy 2 says this in verses 1 through 4. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high, high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we have here in Genesis 9, we have the authorization to institute human government for the sake of justice, for the sake of human flourishing, and for the sake of people being able to live a life in pursuit of God. All right? So it gets far more complicated in practice, but this is the starting point. This is the genesis point. This is the filter that God expects humanity. This isn't just for... This is, this is to Noah and all his descendants. This is for all of humanity that under God, this is the key. This is the seed of everything that he expects from humanity. It's different when you start to get into the instructions given to Israel. That's a particular covenant people. So that the way that God organizes their government does not necessarily mean that that's how we ought to organize ours. You're starting to get into different things, but this Genesis 9, I believe, is an all-humanity principle. And all of Christianity and all governments are going to be held accountable to this Genesis 9 standard of are they just, have they helped humanity fulfill their God-given purpose, and have they, they're going to be accountable to God, have they made it hard for people to find the one true God? They'll be accountable to God for that. So here we go, just a few principles here, applications. Every human being bears some measure of responsibility for good government. This is given to all of them. So we all should work for justice, pray for justice, vote for justice, vote for human flourishing, think through particular policies, not according to party lines, but according to Genesis 9 framework. Does this make sense? And we should hold this loosely and we should talk with each other on this basis, knowing that there can be some flexibility in how this has worked out. We should hear the various cases for like, okay, this law is going to do this. And just because it doesn't come from someone that you necessarily would agree with all the time, there may be something to be said about that, that yes, that actually honors the image of God more than I thought. No party or system or candidate gets this exactly right. Every human being, we need the dialogue, we need the prayer, and we all bear some responsibility, particularly in our government, to make sure that we're pursuing this Genesis 9 ideal under God. We are charged with finding the best form of government. There's no mandate in here about what kind of government we should have. Different places and times, that may look differently. God does not institute a particular kind of government. You've got king kingdoms, you've got theocracies, you've got all these different ways, even within the Bible, that God uses and leads his people. And so it is up to human beings to work out the forms of those governments under him. God does not specifically, does not specify the precise form of government, but allows for some flexibility to adjust to dramatically different historical conditions. Wisdom, therefore, is the critical principle for good governance. The government itself is under and obligated by the Genesis 9, 5, and 6 justice mechanism. Okay? So that's our, those are our go-to verses in the Bible for how we want, how decisions are made, how policies all of those kinds of things, it must squeeze through the idle eye of that needle <laughs> to be seen as just, and that gets complicated. We need to see the Bible as constitution, not case law. It gives us the principles, and then wisdom and circumstance and context may 
guide to particular policies or not policies. So you can just take this through the George Floyd case or universal health care or immigration. Just look at it through this grid right here and maybe consider what is the best way to honor to honor the image of God under God in this threefold way. Does this render judgment for the sake of justice? Does this promote human flourishing? Does this give people an adequate opportunity, a free opportunity to, to know the one true God? So we have so much packed into these two verses here. Genesis 9, 5 through 6 offers a striking and even tense balancing act. God gives governments authority to prosecute crimes against human beings, not crimes exclusively against him. Still, governments who deny their authority come that come, deny that their authority comes from him and to, who do not rule in accordance with his law earn his judgment. So there's that tension there that all governments are accountable to God and yet we don't want governments prosecuting sins against God. That then gets into all kinds of messy stuff. So, much more we could say there, but I just wanted to point that out and just draw a few principles out and more questions may come out of that, but would encourage you to think through Genesis 9, 5 through 6 when it comes to um, issues of justice and social order. Lastly, the new covenant. So we have God, a new world, and then a new covenant which parallels the final salvation. <clears throat> so God makes a covenant. This is the first time the word covenant comes up in the Bible. We saw the elements of a covenant in Genesis 2, Maybe even Genesis 1 a little bit. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we saw some of the elements of a covenant, an agreement between God and man. That's what a covenant is. is an agreement between two parties with blessings and curses. Um, there are things that are going to be good if you follow the covenant. There's going to be consequences if you don't. In fact, the word for making a covenant is called cutting a covenant. We're going to see that a little bit later, that usually to make a covenant, you cut an animal in half, and you were essentially, you would walk through the center of these. You'd get blood all over your feet. And the idea would be, if I break this covenant, you can cut me in half like these animals. So this idea of cutting a covenant has this bloody, sort of high level, this is more than just a shake of the hand. This is a deep-seated agreement with real blessings, real cursings. And here's, we saw that in Genesis 2, we saw the elements of it, now we see it explicitly here in Genesis chapter 9, where God says again and again, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And notice that this is a covenant with all of creation for all of time. Chapter 9, verse 8, God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, which would be all the humans, and with every living creature that is with you. Just in case we weren't sure what every living creature meant, he says, The birds, the livestock, the beasts of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. And then he says in verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So this is, an, this is a covenant that God makes with all of creation for all of time. It's a big covenant. The Noahic covenant is what we call it. We just add IC on the end to make it, I don't know, flow. The Noahic covenant is a covenant made for all time. The covenant itself is that there will be no judgment by worldwide flood again. God will not bring his judgment by worldwide flood again. Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And this covenant is marked by a sign. In verse 13 through 16, look at the sign of this covenant. God loves to give signs that go with his covenant so that 
he, so that you will remember the promise that he has made. There's, the covenants have signs with them. And here's the sign. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So the word bow, keset, keset, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right in Hebrew. But its definition is a weapon designed to deliver arrows. You ever heard of a bow before? So God the warrior is setting his bow in the clouds. He is putting that weapon of war down. The flood will not come again. And every time that it rains and you see the rainbow, you're to think the the element, this particular weapon of God's judgment is now set down. The bow of his judgment is set down. Every rainstorm, you would think if you came off that ark, every rainstorm would get you a little jittery, wouldn't it? Every time a thunderstorm came, you'd be like, oh, this is it again. And every time there would be this rainbow to remind you, no. Rainstorms will come and go at varying levels of severity, but every time they will end and my bow will be in the clouds. This is not worldwide judgment again. You can imagine just how unnerving that would be for a few generations. To know, but, to, but to know that every time you see that bow, just reflect on God. Every rainstorm would feel like an act of judgment. Every time the sun reflects on the rain, it exposes that God's bow is at rest because of this covenant. And so there is this wonderful symbol that God puts. And I, and I find it fascinating that he says in verse 14, When I bring clouds on the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. So he talks about that he will see it. It's, it's to be a sign for us, but it's also to be a sign for him. Just think around the world, where is it raining? Is it raining somewhere in the world right now? Which means there's also a rainbow somewhere in the world at any moment. Which means that God is constantly thinking about his gracious covenant to humanity. God is constantly thinking of his promise. God has has set a bow in the clouds that is being seen by someone right now, all the time, ever since this day. There's always been a rainbow that someone's seen, probably. And God also sees it and remembers his covenant. God never forgets his promises. And God has set a bow in the clouds, and there are maybe thousands of bows in the clouds right now as a sign to humanity and to God himself that he is a God of mercy and that this particular element of justice, the bow, is hung up It's hung up in the clouds and will not be used by him. This rainstorm is not an act of his judgment. So let's just go into another sticky issue here. We know today that the rainbow is seen as a symbol of something else in our culture, of sexual freedom in our culture. And I would just offer, humbly offer a few suggestions on how we relate to that as we see a symbol in our culture and how we respond to that and how others are responding to that um, just some, some humble suggestions. These are, these are Josh Brown's opinions. These are not binding necessarily from Scripture, but this would be my wisdom in terms of how do we see the rainbow now, particularly in our culture. I would offer some suggestions. First is that let's not surrender the meaning of God's covenant symbol of mercy to our culture. Let's not allow it to be redefined in our own minds. Because that's God's symbol. 
and it's a symbol of his mercy. At the same time, I would argue that we not be combative about it because the symbol itself is a symbol of kindness and mercy and patience. And oh, the irony of the Christians who believe this is a sign of God's kindness and patience and, and the fact that he is not going to be, bring wrath in that way. He will bring wrath. But this element of his kindness would be in our attempts to stand up for it, we do so in a way that goes against the sign that it's meant to give, right? So that's the irony there. So while we don't want to surrender the meaning of that, we wouldn't want to undermine the meaning of it in the way that we go about standing up for it. Does that make sense? And then lastly, let us be shrewd about how and when we leverage that particular symbol for maximizing God's intention and glory. We have to think through how we use that symbol because we know it doesn't mean the same thing to others that it does to us. So you get those three principles. Don't surrender it to a different meaning. And yet at the same time, remember that its meaning is about mercy and kindness and patience, right? And then be shrewd in how you interact with it, how you display it, knowing that there is two vastly different messages that are tied up in this one symbol in our culture. So lastly, this covenant is unconditional. It's unconditional. It's just simply gifted to man, unconditionally gifted to all the world, not because of merit. There's no conditions. There's nothing in here that humanity has to do to merit this covenant. God is going to give this to the just and the unjust, that he will not wipe out the world with a flood. This is a promise that's to everyone, to all creation, regardless of how they respond to him. This is an unconditional covenant. Verse 17, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is called an unconditional covenant. It's just granted to creation simply because of the benevolent, kind heart of God that he will set his bow in the cloud in this way. And this ultimately parallels a greater final salvation. Here's what we need to know. So let's just zoom out a little bit and look at this whole flood story. And I want you to see something about the way God saves. First and foremost here is that judgment is coming against all sin and sinners. We saw that in the flood. And that remains true. 1 Thessalonians tells us that there is a wrath to come for all men. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 That Christ is the only way that we can be saved from the wrath to come that's coming for all men. Secondly, there is an undeserved way of salvation provided, apart from works, merely as an offer of mercy. Romans 5.9 says that we are saved through Him, through Jesus, not because of our own works, Ephesians 2 tells us, but because of the grace of God. So there was judgment coming in the flood for all the flesh because of their sin and their violence and their wickedness, so also there is a judgment coming against all of us, and yet there is a way, there is an ark of salvation that is provided through the wrath that is to come. And that, it, that way of salvation is through trusting in the righteousness, obedience, and accomplishment of one man. We saw that in Noah. Noah was considered righteous because of his faith. He obeyed God perfectly in terms of his building of the ark. And he, his accomplishment, the accomplishment of one man, led to the salvation of humanity. Likewise, Jesus is the one who was perfectly righteous. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. We trust and cling to the righteousness, the obedience, the accomplishment of someone else to make it through judgment. Our works are, will not save us, but clinging to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the new Noah, the better Noah, 
will lead us through the wrath that is coming. Jesus is the ultimate Noah. He's the new Adam. He's the better Abel. He's the true Seth. All of these find their culmination. All of those promises, all of those good qualities are meant to point us to Jesus as the one, the one who can lead us through judgment. And then we see this passing through a watery grave. We're going to see this again and again where God takes his people through the Red Sea. God loves to take his people. He saves them from judgment. Then he passes them through water as a symbol of being brought through judgment safely. And then they're brought into a new world, a new creation, a new kingdom. And that's what happens is that we have this passing through water. 1 Peter 3, 16 through 22 talks about this. I'm going to actually look it up so I get it exactly right. 1 Peter 3, 16 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being, being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, which they formerly did not obey, when God's patience in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water... Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. So this idea of passing through water as, as a symbol of being, uh, being brought under judgment, being put to death and being made alive, that's part of why we baptize as believers, is that you put your trust in Christ and it's like you're in the ark and you're safe from all the wrath that's out there. And you're coming through the water, and now you're coming into this whole new world, this whole new creation, which is then pictured in Christian baptism, which Jesus himself went through, is going through this picture. And likewise, we call every Christian, in fact, Jesus calls every Christian, to pass through that watery grave and come out into a new world, a new creation. And so this safely passing through a watery grave into a new creation kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And now, as a Christian, you now step into the kingdom of God. You are part of the church. You are part of the kingdom by trusting in Him. And then we see that this is marked by generous and joyful worship of God. The first thing that those, those uh, Noah and his family did when they stepped off the ark was to worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable act of worship, right? This is your joyful worship. And then we see that uh, living as recommissioned image bearers. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this be fruitful and multiply is not just a biological thing. It's now a spiritual thing by the message of the gospel. And then ultimately we live in the confidence of a good, sovereign, timeless God and his words of promise. Hebrews 10, 23 tells us that we should hold fast because he who promised is faithful. So hopefully you see in this, you see a recounting of the actual historical event of the flood, but you also see a picture of ultimate salvation. The judgment is coming for all. There is a way of salvation provided through one righteous man, and if you will identify with him, if you will step into the ark of the work of Jesus Christ, you will pass through the watery grave. Your death and resurrection, his death and resurrection will become yours, and now you will step into a new creation kingdom marked by your true worship of God, recommissioned to be his image bearer in the world and living in the confidence that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Do you see that? So if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to look at the biblical story, to look at the biblical pattern 
And God has been organizing and arranging history to preach a message to you that this is the God who is, who will judge sin but has provided a way of salvation and mercy through it, through Jesus Christ, the one who came in the flesh, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the death for your, died, died a death on the cross for your sins, rose again, that all who trust in him may have this be their story. This is your testimony if you have trusted in Christ. There was judgment coming for you, but you put your faith in Christ and he did all of the work on your behalf and so now you worship him. You're recommissioned as his ambassador and all the promises of God are yes and amen for you, all of them. So that brings us to the end here of, let's just think about this for just a moment. God is the main character and the supreme agent. So let us enjoy him as Noah and his family did as they stepped off the ark. Joyful worship of God that pleased God. The main, God is the main character. He's the supreme agent. He is the one who saved them, and he is the one who saves all who trust in Christ. So worship him. Obey his word. Walk in his promises. Celebrate his mighty acts. And then behold the new world that God is making through the church, this kingdom that has come. And may we display the goodness of his kingdom. May people walk into here and it feels like a totally different world because these people are transformed by Jesus. See the world as God does. Live in the world as God designed. And hope for the world that God still has forward for those of us that trust in him. This world's not our home. We're headed to a better home, a new world that's like the first creation, but better. And may we display that new world in our life together. And then this new covenant, which parallels the final salvation. May we share that message. Enjoy, display, share. Let's share this good news that God is saving sinners through the person and work of Jesus and bringing them into a new relationship with him. Be convinced of the coming judgment against your sin. Trust the merciful salvation offered in Jesus. Pass through the watery grave of baptism and step into a new world of worship and fellowship and mission. That's the call. That's how this passage connects to Jesus Christ. This really happened. Jesus, God really spoke these words in the Old Testament and the way it relates to you is through Jesus Christ. May you turn to him in faith. Remember, God defines the reality. God gives the instruction. God guides us personally and he does so through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. We thank you for this passage and all that it has to teach us. God, there's so many things that are far beyond. I mean, we, a year's worth of sermons could be preached from this text. God, I pray that there would be something that we take from this and apply to our lives, um, have conversations about, God, may this, this passage, these words directly from you, uh, may they shape how we live, may, may they cause us to delight in you, uh, may they cause us to live more faithfully, may they help us understand and be able to interact appropriately um, to the various justice systems in our world. And God, ultimately we pray that you would help us to see Jesus Christ as the one who fulfills all of this and who is indeed offering the words of life, the way of salvation to us. May we trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. 